Hey, family, open to Revelation 14. We got to get right to work today. Revelation 14 is where we're going to be. Last summer when I first started telling people that we were going to start going through the book of Revelation, I got basically the same response from every person that that I told. It was basically first a look of terror, and then the same question from almost every person. Why? Why are we going through the book of Revelation? Because, like, if you didn't grow up in church, Revelation just seems weird. It just seems really weird. If you did grow up in church, Revelation seems terrifying to you because you watched all the movies about Revelation when you were growing up, and you got nightmares about Revelation growing up. And so now you're like, ah, oh, do we really have to study Revelation? Well, I hope that you're seeing, as we make our way through this book, that once you get past the weird stuff, and the terrifying stuff in Revelation, that you see, it is just this ridiculously encouraging book. It really is. Because, yeah, there's horrifying things in Revelation, but that's because there's horrifying things in this world. There's horrifying things in this world. If you don't believe that, that's just because you haven't lived long enough or because you don't get out enough. There's horrifying things all around us. We just don't see them a lot of times. We just need a guide to show us what's behind the facade in this world. Like, if you want to get to know a neighborhood, usually the best folks who operate as guides to a neighborhood are the folks who live on the street. They know everything that's happening in a neighborhood. They'll tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, that restaurant over there, that's not really a restaurant. That's a front for an illegal gaming room. And you're like, oh, so that's why I never see people getting food at that restaurant. Yeah, that's why. They'll tell you, oh, yeah, yeah, and that church over there, that's not really a church. That's a money laundering scheme. You're like, oh, that's why I never see people at church over there. Yeah, now it all makes sense. The people who live on the street are the folks who know the neighborhood best, and they will show you and tell you what's lying just underneath the surface. We have monsters in this world around us, and Revelation is pulling back the curtain to show us the monsters in this world, and then even more than that, pulling back the curtain to show us the monster behind the monsters in this world. In Revelation 12, we got introduced to the dragon. He's the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. In Revelation 13, we find out how he deceives the whole world. He raises up political powers that seem almost godlike. He raises up religious powers that seem really Christ-like. But these powers draw people away from Christ, and then these powers persecute the people who hold fast to Christ. That's the world we live in right now. But the good news is, the dragon rules for a short amount of time. In Revelation, it says, the dragon only rules for three and a half years. Half the number of seven. Half the number of completion, which tells you it's not forever. Satan isn't in charge forever. It's only a short amount of time. And the promise is that God's going to provide for his people the whole time. In Revelation 12, we heard she is nourished. The church is nourished for a time, two times, and half a time. Three and a half years. In other words, however long it is that Satan's in charge, however long it is that Satan has some limited amount of power, however long it is that Satan attacks you, God is going to provide for you. And that's what Revelation 14 is going to make really clear. No matter what the monsters in this world throw at you, God is going to provide for you, protect you, all the way to the end. So let's pray, then we'll dig into this great text. Father, thank you so much 
for peeling back the curtain to show us what's really happening in this world. A lot of us don't want to see it. Ignorance is bliss. We want to pretend like life is good and normal and comfortable, but we just get these little hints all the time that it's not. This world is not. Thank you for confirming that for us, confirming our suspicions, and showing us the horrors in this world, but thank you even more for showing us the hope that is in this world because of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ who conquered the dragon at the cross. Help us to see Jesus and put our hope in Jesus because of what we see in your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in the book of Revelation, God is peeling back the curtain to show us what's happening in the world. But at the same time, Revelation is also peeling back the curtain to show us what's happening in heaven right now. We're looking at Revelation 14, starting in verse 1. Revelation 14, 1, John says this. Then I looked. Remember, he's having this vision there on the island of Patmos 2,000 years ago. I looked, and there was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. They don't have the mark of the beast. They have the mark of the Lamb. They are sealed by the Holy Spirit, standing there in front of the Lamb on Mount Zion. That's a reference to Psalm 2, where it says, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Who's been installed as the king on Mount Zion? The Lamb. The lamb who was slaughtered. During this time, we don't see Jesus as the lion. We see him as the lamb who was slaughtered. So family, when life is tough, remember Jesus is king. And he endured a really tough life on your behalf. He's ruling in heaven. And he's got 144,000 saints with him in heaven. That's a symbol of all of God's people across all of time. Twelve times 12 times 1,000 is 144,000. That's 12 tribes of Israel, which represents all of God's people under the Old Covenant, times 12 disciples, which represents all of God's people under the New Covenant, times 1,000, which is just an ancient way of saying a lot, a lot, a lot of people. There's a lot of saints all gathered together in heaven, and look at what they're experiencing. Verse 2, John says, I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters, waterfalls. Like this, the rumbling of, of loud thunder. And the sound I heard was like harpists playing on their harps. That's the sound that John is hearing in heaven. This sound that is powerful like a waterfall. But at the same time, it's beautiful like an orchestra. What could be making a sound like that? Verse 3. Here it is. They sang a new song. A song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. But no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. That's the sound that John's hearing. He's hearing all the saints singing. This epic sound of singing. Just imagine that sound. Like, maybe you've been to some epic concert at Aloha Stadium back when it was still a thing. Uh, or maybe maybe it. Blaisdell, you know, arena, that's basically the only place you can see a show anymore. Um, you saw this epic show that was just beautiful music and also just fiercely loud. Your, your ears were bleeding the whole night and you loved every minute of it. It was just amazing. And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, the lead singer stopped singing and held the mic out 
And the whole stadium, the whole arena just started singing all in unison. All, just chicken skin all around. It's just the most amazing sound. That's what John is experiencing right here. That's, that's the experience that the saints in heaven are having. The dragon can make all kinds of threats here on earth. But his threats are going to be drowned out by the singing of the saints in heaven. The dragon snarls, the saints sing. The dragon bleats, the saints spit bars. That's how my kids would say it. They're just making this epic music to God. It sounds like thunder. And so who are these saints? Look at verse 4. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women since they remained virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were redeemed from humanity as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Now, when it says they remained virgins, that doesn't mean that only celibate Christians make it to heaven. Some interpreters have tried to figure out that kind of implication. No, we saw in Hosea last summer that when God wants to talk about people who have strayed from him to other gods, a lot of times he calls them adulterers. He makes this comparison between sexual sin and spiritual sin. And so when John says these saints are virgins, he means they haven't given themselves to other gods. They've been faithful to the one true God. It says in verse 6, I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This angel is a representative of the church, and this is our mission right now. This is our mission, family, to proclaim the gospel, the eternal gospel, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And here's the eternal gospel we're proclaiming. Verse 7, he spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. The provision of God is here. And so worship God because the hour of his judgment has come. And we know from Romans 1 that, ju that God's judgment is happening right now. Romans 1, it says that his wrath is being revealed from heaven right now against all unrighteousness. And the way that God's wrath is being revealed right now is that he delivers people over to the desires of their hearts. That's what Romans 1 says. God is exercising his wrath in the world right now, and the way it works is that he lets you do what you want to do, and then he lets you suffer the consequences for it. So for now, there might be earthly consequences, but eventually there will be eternal consequences. And so that's why we need to proclaim the gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people, to every neighbor and coworker and classmate and cousin. And the angel, as he pronounces the gospel, he isn't just giving information about God's grace. The gospel isn't just revelation. It's an invitation. Fear God and give him glory. He created the world. He's given you everything you need, most especially his son, Jesus Christ. So fear God and give him glory. Why well, you've still got the chance. Like it says in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. He won't be near for long. He won't allow himself to be found forever. 
And so that's what it's saying here in Revelation 14. Look at verse 8. This is another. A second angel followed, saying, It is fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. Now, when you see that word Babylon in Revelation, you need to understand that was a code word for Christians in the first century. Whenever they wanted to talk about things and they didn't want their neighbors to start suspecting things about whether or not they were loyal to the emperor, uh, they would use a code word, Babylon, to talk about people and leaders and institutions and empires who are opposed to God and his people. In those days, Rome is what they were talking about. How do you say evil empire without saying evil empire? You say Babylon. And so that's what John is referring to here, but here's the problem. He's writing in 96 AD, and Rome hasn't fallen yet. It's not even close to falling. But the angel is saying this in the past tense. How is that even possible? Well, it is so certain to happen that it's like it already did. The angel just puts it in the past tense because it's so sure that the people who oppose God will be judged by God. Like it says in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Another, a third angel, followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he'll also drink the wine of God's wrath, which is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. He'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There's no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This right here, this is a picture of hell, and it is horrifying. We're seeing physical suffering. We're seeing emotional torment. We're seeing spiritual anguish. You never get a break from it. It says there's no rest, day or night. It lasts for eternity. It says the smoke goes up forever and ever and ever. And this is God's judgment on our sin. What we do, it doesn't just have earthly consequences. One day, there's going to be eternal consequences. Now, the good news is that day isn't today. The good news is that day hasn't come yet. This is a warning to unbelievers here. Because God is slow to anger and abounding in love, but one day, his love is going to be expressed through his righteous anger, through his judgment and wrath on wickedness and sin. Which is why it says in verse 12, this calls for endurance from the saints. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. So this is God's warning to believers. He's saying, you don't want to end up like the unbelievers. So you've got to endure. You've got to endure because Satan is always trying to get you to stop worshiping God and start worshiping him. He's always trying to get you to stop trusting God and start trusting him. He did that in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. He did that in the wilderness with Jesus. That was his goal. Remember, 
after the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness and leads him to do this 40-day fast, Satan tempts him to turn rocks into bread. To turn these stones into bread. Maybe you're like, well, how, how is that a temptation? What, what's so tempting about that? It's not like he's tempting Jesus towards gluttony. He's not tempting Jesus towards some, like, $1,000 omakase dinner, some, like, 32-ounce A5 Wagyu steak. That's not what it is. He's just tempting Jesus to have a couple slices of bread. How is that a temptation? Well, the real temptation comes in the very first words that Satan says to Jesus. He says, if you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. What he's saying is, you're the son of God, right? Yeah, yeah, you're the son of God. So what are you doing out here in the wilderness all by yourself, starving to death? You don't deserve this. You deserve to be eating like a king. So the least you could do is turn a few rocks into bread. That's how the dragon attacks, family. That's how he works. That's the kind of idea that Satan wants to plant in our heads. Number one, doubt God's provision. Doubt God's provision. That's what he wants to do. When you don't have the job you wanted, when you don't have the paycheck you wanted, when you don't have the house you wanted, when you don't have the husband that you wanted, Satan wants to get it into your mind, the thought, God isn't providing for me the way I deserve. He wants you to doubt God's provision. And then number two, he wants you to doubt God's plan. Doubt God's plan. Like when Satan says to Jesus, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms in the world. They can be yours. If you just bow down. Now, he knows that the Father already promised to give Jesus all of the kingdoms of this world, but he also knows that Jesus has to go to the cross before that happens. And so Satan is saying to him, hey, you're, you're the son of God, right? Yeah, you're the son of God. So why has your dad got a plan like that for you? Your dad's saying you've got to die if you want to get your inheritance? Man, you deserve glory and honor. You've got to die to get that? That's not right. Clearly, your father is not looking out for your best interests. But I am. I am. I'm not going to make you suffer the way your dad does. Just bow down. We'll rule this world together. Just switch teams. It'll be great. We'll rule it together. I'll never make you suffer the way he will. And that's exactly the kind of idea he wants to plant in all of our minds. Life is going to be a lot easier if you just follow my plan instead of God's plan. Life will be so much more comfortable, so much easier if you just do things my way instead of his way. He doesn't want the best for you. I do. Satan wants you to doubt God's provision. He wants you to doubt God's plan. And then number three, he wants you to doubt God's love. Doubt God's love. Like when he took Jesus to the temple, took him up to the roof, and he said, why don't you, why don't you jump off and see if angels catch you? He was quoting Psalm 91, where God promised to send angels to protect Israel. And he's going, hey, Jesus, I, I thought you were the son of God, right? Well, God promised to protect all these dirty sinners in the temple. He promised to send angels to, to take care of them. Don't you deserve better protection than that? Sh shouldn't your dad love you more than he loves them? Why don't you see if he'll send angels to protect you? That would be a good test. That would be a good way for him to prove his love for you. 
That's the idea Satan wants to plant in all of us. He wants us to say, look at how much God is blessing that guy. Doesn't seem like he loves me as much as he loves that guy. Family, whenever Satan attacks, he's saying exactly the same thing. Every temptation is exactly the same. All Satan wants to do is to get you to believe that God isn't enough. That's it. All he wants to do is get you to believe that God doesn't provide enough. He's not protecting you enough. He doesn't love you enough. Every temptation is the same. God isn't enough. And so that's why Jesus answers every temptation pretty much the same way. Saying to Satan, no, 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 God is more than enough. Say, you want me to turn these rocks into bread? Well, yeah, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Because it's God's word that led me into the wilderness, and then it was God's word that led me to do this 40-day fast. And so far, I haven't received any more word from God telling me to start eating. And so I'm just going to trust God and his word and trust God and his provision. Yet, you want me to throw myself off the roof of the temple to see if God really loves me? Well, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I don't need to have God prove things that he already promised me. Because right before I came out here into the wilderness, I got baptized, and at that moment, I heard a voice booming out of heaven, this is my son, in him I am well pleased. I believe that. He said it. I believe it. And so I don't need him to prove something that he's already promised. I believe in God's provision. I trust God's plan. I trust God's love. And family, that's how you beat back the dragon. That's how you fight against temptation. Praise God for what you have, even when life is hard. Praise God for what you have, especially when life is hard. Because Psalm 34.10 is true. Those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Family, you don't lack any good thing right now. Even if it feels like you got nothing that you need. Even if it feels like you lost everything that you need. God gives you everything that would be good for you. You have every good thing right now. And then it only gets better in the future. Look at what it says in verse 13. John says, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead. When have you ever heard that before? Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they will rest from their labors since their works follow them. You've got everything good right now, and in the future it only gets better. And so that's how you endure right now. That's how you make it through trials and temptations right now. Number one, remember the reward. Remember the reward that's coming, and it says that reward is rest. Rest. The best thing you could ever get in life is rest. Because, family, I hear from so many people who just tell me, man, I'm just so tired. Life is so exhausting. Well, guess what? You get rest. Jesus said, you just come to me and I'll give you rest. Now and for eternity. Look at how it's going to come. Verse 14. 
John says, I looked, and there was a white cloud, and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. And so the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. This is the reward. This is the harvest of the righteous. Okay, God is reaping his people, and he's bringing us to rest. Because when he returns, or when he calls you home, he's going to give you rest like you've never experienced before. Rest from temptation. Rest from that cycle of sin that you keep falling into. You get rest from all the relational drama that you deal with, the little conflicts that turn into big conflicts, the miscommunications that turn into misunderstandings that turn into who knows what. You get rest from idolatry, always trying to find joy through experiences, through possessions, through people, and then moving on to the next thing when that joy isn't the joy that you thought it would be or when that joy fades. Man, that is exhausting, exhausting. You get rest from illness and disease and chronic conditions. You get rest from caring for people with illness and disease and chronic conditions. You get rest from working two or three jobs just to survive on this rock. You get rest. And if you can remember the rest that's coming, that's going to help you endure the trials and temptations that are coming. Remember the reward. But at the same time, Number two, remember the consequences. Remember the consequences, because you've got to remember the cost of not enduring trials and temptations with Christ. There's another harvest that's coming, and it's not pretty. We've got to keep going in verse 17. It says, then another angel, with a sharp sickle, came out of the temple in heaven. Yet another angel, who had authority over fire, came from the altar and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyards of the earth, because its grapes have ripened. And so the angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And then the press was trampled outside the city, and the blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. And this is one of the most disturbing images in all of Revelation, a book that is full of disturbing images. God's judgment on humanity results in a lake of blood that's six feet deep and goes 180 miles in every direction. This is a horrifying image, and John wants us to feel the weight of it. I mean, Think about how much blood this is. If you do the math, this is 44 quadrillion gallons of blood. The human body holds 1.3 gallons of blood, so that's 34 quadrillion people who would have to die in order to spill this much blood. There's only 108 billion people who've ever lived on this earth in all of history, and so this is infinitely more blood than has ever existed in all of history, in the world. This is a deliberately horrifying image 
to point us to the horror of God's wrath. It's beyond anything we can imagine. This is what unbelievers have to look forward to. They've gotten plenty of warnings. One day God is going to carry out his judgment. This is the harvest of the unrighteous. This is God's final wrath on the people who reject Jesus. Now, I know it's really hard for us to understand how a loving God could subject people to something like this. But the truth is, people chose this for themselves. They chose it for themselves. In John 3, 19, Jesus said, this is judgment. Okay, here's judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. People love darkness. They don't like the light. And so God's wrath is to allow them to stay in the darkness for all of eternity. He allows them to experience the consequences that they chose for themselves. We need to remember that. We need to remember the consequences of life apart from God's grace. But that leads to number three. We also need to remember the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus willingly received the consequences that we deserve for our sin in our place. Everything that should be done to us, everything that we see here in Revelation that will be done to unbelievers was done to Jesus instead. It says unbelievers are going to be crushed by the great winepress of God's wrath. Yeah, just like Jesus was crushed by God's wrath for us. It says unbelievers will be crushed outside the city just like Jesus was crucified outside the city for us. It says blood will flow out of the press just like Jesus' blood flowed for us. It says blood will flow for 180 miles. In the original Greek, that's 1,600 stadia, a very significant number. 1,600 stadia is the traditional distance of the north of Israel to the south of Israel, which tells you Jesus' blood is enough to cover all of God's people. His blood is enough now and forever. Remember that, family. How do you endure trials and temptations in life? Number one, remember the reward. Because life is exhausting right now, but Jesus says, come and I'll give you rest now and for eternity. Number two, remember the consequences. When you decide to live apart from God's grace, he gives you your wish, and it never ends well. There's going to be earthly consequences and eternal consequences, which leads to number three, remember the gospel. Jesus willingly received the consequences we deserve for our sin, and then he rose from the dead to give you new life, and he sent the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So no matter what this world throws at you, you can endure it because you've got Jesus living inside of you. And that changes everything in life. That changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, these are disturbing things in your word. We'd rather just watch the game We'd rather just turn on a comedy on Netflix. We don't want to deal with it. 
but thank you for forcing us to deal with it. Thank you for forcing us to deal with the horrors in this world so that we can fully appreciate the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We know that a diamond only sparkles when we view it against a black velvet backdrop. And so, Lord, as we see the blackness, the darkness, the wickedness of this world, help us to see even more the brilliance of Jesus Christ. Help us to appreciate his grace. Help us to look forward to his reward. Help us to remember the consequences of not enduring with him and help us to always remember the gospel that he took the consequences we deserve. May that empower us to endure trials and temptations, whatever might come. Help us to just rest in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.